Olympic Agenda 2020 and the future of bidding for and organizing the Olympic Games. You're listening to the latest Around the Rings podcast. I'm Nicole Bennett. Joining us today is Andy Zimbalis, an economist based in the United States and the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics at Smith College in Massachusetts. He's the author of multiple Brookings Institution press titles, the most recent of which is titled Circus Maximus. So, Andy, thank you for joining me today. My first question for you is... What impact do you see on bidding for the Games from Olympic Agenda 2020? Well, I think that that Thomas Bach has rather successfully changed the dynamic, at least for the time being, around demand for hosting the Olympic Games. And part of that has to do with globetrotting that he's been doing since his appointment in September of 2013, going around the globe telling cities that they would be ideal possibilities for, for hosting a future Olympics and, and jacking up the interest. So that was one prong of of his effort. The other prong is that he has been promoting this Olympic uh, 2020 agenda. As I see it, frankly, I, the the substantive changes in Olympic Agenda 2020 are small. Uh, there are some concrete things like the IOC is offering to pay some of the travel expenses for some of the meetings that uh, applicant and candidate cities will attend during the bidding process. Uh, They have issued more hortatory goals uh, for uh, Olympic hosting. And they've said things like, we're going to put renewed emphasis on sustainability. We're going to put renewed emphasis on plans that are synergistic to the development needs of the city. But this kind of uh, exhortation has been around for a long time. Uh, Mr. Roga in the late 1990s, I uh, talked about those things, and it's really since the, the mid mid or early 1990s that the IOC has started to started to promote sustainability. So, wor- words are one thing, and actions are another. It remains to be seen uh, what what in practice and what in substance actually changes. But my own view of it is at this point, uh, it's been part of a very successful PR effort by Bach to to turn around what was a uh, failing interest in, in bidding for the games. Uh, as, as your readers know very well, uh, there are only two remaining uh, candidate cities for hosting the 2022 Winter Olympics. Uh, neither of them appear to be terribly desirable. It was incumbent upon Mr. Bach to, to do something to that, and I think that he's made some successful steps. Uh, at this point, there seems to be a pretty robust interest in hosting the 2024 games. What impact do you see on the cost of organizing the Olympics from Agenda 2020? Uh, not much. I, again, I, 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 I see the, the Agenda 2020 as, as being a lot of exhortation and hortatory um, remarks, but uh, not a great deal of substance. The, the IOC has offered to pay for the, 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 the travel of bidding cities uh, to a variety of IOC meetings during the bid process. As I see it, that will save the cities three hundred thousand, maybe four hundred thousand dollars. But we're talking about bidding costs that run from uh, anywhere from seventy million up to a hundred million, and, and even above that. So I, I think it's at this point just a drop in the bucket. The renewed emphasis that that Bach has placed on uh, frugality in the bidding process and uh, the encouragement to use existing facilities where possible. Uh, the reduction in the mandatory size of the Olympic Stadium from 80,000 down to 60,000. Uh, some of those things might uh, might have a small impact on reducing costs, but one has to keep in mind at the end of the day, 
that if you if you take some of the some of the new rhetoric from the IOC seriously, as Boston 2024 seems to be doing at this stage anyway. Um, so Boston 2024, for instance, is uh, going to be building an Olympic stadium of 60,000 rather than 80,000. The initial plans say that they won't be building luxury suites, uh, they won't have club seats, they won't have extensive catering uh, at the stadium. And after the, after the Olympic Games, they're going to take it down. It's going to have a modular technology. They're going to take it down and, and give it to other schools in the area to use. That's, that's, uh, that appears to be taking the IOC at its word, that they're, the IOC is saying we don't want to see the extravagance and the grandiosity anymore, we want uh, economically frugal plans. Well, I think at the end of the day, we have, we have to see what the IOC does here because the IOC is going to have, in addition to Boston, assuming Boston stays, stays in the bid, they're going to have uh, maybe Paris, maybe Rome, maybe Budapest, uh, maybe Johannesburg or, or Durban, maybe Melbourne, maybe Doha. They're going to have a, a bunch of applicant cities out there who are all going to be competing and trying to do one better than the previous or the other cities. Uh, and, uh, and it's my feeling that uh, at the end of the day, uh, if one city has frugal designs across the board and another city has much more luxurious and extravagant design across the board, that the IOC is, is going to go with the more impressive and more extravagant bid. Now, as a rule, and I know you've touched on this a little already, but all recent cities hosting the Games have covered the cost of organizing the event out of marketing revenues. Some have made a profit. How, then, do you believe cities lose money on hosting the Olympics? Well, first of all, the, the OCOG budget is a small share of the overall cost of hosting the Games. As you know, there's the operating budget, which is the OCOG budget, which is what you're referring to when you say that cities break even. But let's let's just uh, put, put the operating budget to a side. These, these days, the operating budget is going to come in somewhere around four or five billion dollars. And generally speaking, yes, if you, if you take all of the, the Olympic related revenue, and, and, and it's called generally marketing revenue, if you've, as you've called it, but when you, when you get television contract money, that's not marketing. And when you sell tickets, that's not marketing. Uh, but if you take all of, the, all of the revenue from licensing, from ticketing, from television, from corporate sponsorships, domestic and internationally, you add it all up, the amount of that that goes to the host city, to the, to the OCOG, it'll come out to 4 or $5 billion. Uh, at least these days, that's more or less what it comes out to. And, and the cost of hosting the games can also, the operating costs for the 17 days, can also come out to 4 or $5 billion. Take that money, the organizing, the organizing games budget, for the operation of the games and put it to a side, let's call it break even. Then you have the non-OCOG development budget, and that's basically building all of the facilities, the, the competition venues, plus the accoutrements, the infrastructural accoutrements that go along with that, which can be parking lots, which can be access roads, which can be roads themselves, could be uh, uh, utility hookups or communication hookups and so on and so forth. That budget can come to very easily uh, another five or ten or fifteen billion dollars, depending on the country, and then you have the non-OCOG infrastructure budget, which is what what really ballooned in Sochi and it ballooned in Beijing in 2008, and it will it has ballooned also in Rio, and it generally balloons that third budget category balloons in countries that are less developed. 
these so-called BRICS countries uh, and other countries because they don't have the, the necessary infrastructure. So they have to do much, much, much more. So just looking at the operating budget and not ignoring the other two budgets is, is an, an inadequate gauge for how the city is impacted by, by hosting the city and the country or the region is impacted by hosting the Olympic Games. And I know earlier you mentioned Boston 2024. They're discussing the possibility of a referendum. Do you think referendums are necessary for Boston? Would a citywide or statewide referendum be necessary? Well, it's certainly not necessary. Obviously, in the United States, we have representative government, and there are all sorts of issues uh, for which the representatives, the people who are elected in a state legislature or a city council, make decisions. So we don't necessarily need referendums for all decision-making. That would be very expensive, very unwieldy, and very inefficient. Uh, but we, ten- we tend to have referendums when the expenditure of money is very large and when the issue is, is very important and will have an impact on large numbers of people. So I don't, uh, I don't think it's up to me uh, whether or not there's a referendum in, for Boston 2020. I think if, if the people of Massachusetts are demanding a referendum, then it's something that should be actively considered. Something also to consider, Big Dig cost $20 billion, but there was no referendum. What are your thoughts on on that? Well, same thing. This is a matter for the electorate to decide how important it is to them. Part of the the problem with the Big Dig, and I'm afraid it's a similar problem with hosting the Olympics, is that there was a massive cost overrun. The initial initial bid price for the Big Dig, when people were, were voting for it, when, when the legislators were voting for it, was, was $2 billion. It, it ended up, I think the, the, the actual number is closer to 15, not 20 billion, but that doesn't matter. There's a massive overrun there. There are massive overruns, and there have been overruns every single Olympic Games that we have records for. There have been overruns. And the, the average overrun in real terms is about threefold. That is to say, take the initial bid, times that by three, and you'll get the final cost of, of hosting the Games. Los Angeles 1984 produced a $200 million legacy for sport. Why can't Boston? What are your thoughts on the city's bid for the games? Well, yeah, the L.A. OCOG surplus was actually $215 million. Um, And what happened in Los Angeles in in 1984 is sui generis. It's unique. It, It won't happen again. What happened in 1984 in Los Angeles is that when Los Angeles was awarded the games in 1978, it followed pretty disastrous games in Mexico City in 1968, in Munich in 1972, and in Montreal in 1976. Nobody, frankly, wanted to host the Olympics for the 1984 games. And Los Angeles, not not the city, but a private group in Los Angeles, was the only place in the world that was offering to the IOC that they would host the games. They offered on the conditions that, number one, the IOC would back up any financial deficits that there were from hosting. Now that The IOC doesn't do that typically. Typically, the and in fact, in all other cases, the IOC requires that the city and the state or a combination of local governments provide a financial backstop if there's, if there's a shortfall. Los Angeles got the IOC to give them the, back, the backstop. Um, number two, Los Angeles went to the IOC and said, if we do this, we, you have to let us use our existing facilities, including the the um, Olympic Stadium that we used when we hosted the Games in 1972. That's also something that the IOC has not allowed to have happen in other instances. So the Los Angeles OCOG had a very, very small construction budget. 
and and Peter Uberoth, who did a, a wonderful job, an efficient job of managing the LA OCOG in 1984, uh, found corporate sponsors to to fund the very small amount of stadium or venue construction that they did have to do. And Uberoff also innovated by introducing exc- uh, the strategy of exclu- exclusive uh, sponsorship categories that ended up producing much more corporate sponsorship revenue for Los Angeles than had, had, had theretofore ever existed. It was such a successful strategy that the IOC copied it and developed their TOP program uh, right after the 1984 games. So those are all uh, special and unique circumstances for Los Angeles that explains the, um, the surplus that the OCOG in Los Angeles had. Now, shifting to 2016 and the Rio Olympics, I wanted to ask you, do you think there will be benefits from the World Cup and the Olympic Games for Brazil? I don't think there won't be net economic benefits. There will be some benefits because there will be some elements of infrastructure that were developed or improved or modernized in order to host the games. Uh, the problem, though, is, is that out, out of spending, they spent about, I say they, Brazil spent about $20 billion to host the World Cup, and, and they're on, on schedule to, to spend another $20 billion more or less to host the Olympics. Uh, so there, you're talking about $40 billion of expenditure. A large, large, large share of that is going to end up being for white elephants, for, for, for soccer stadiums um, that are scarcely ever used, uh, for, for other venues related to the Olympics that will be uh, under, underutilized, uh, for uh, transportation lanes, for these BRTs, the, the rapid bus system that are, is going to go directly to the Olympic venues rather than serve more generally for transportation ease in Rio. So you're spending um, an enormous amount of money that will not be beneficial for Brazilian or Rio development. Now, there's some money that will is being spent in a productive way. Uh, and whether out of the $40 billion, that number is $4 billion or $6 billion or $8 billion, I don't know. The point about it, though, is that that four or six or eight billion that is being spent in a way that's constructive for Brazilian and Rio development could have been spent anyway. You didn't need to host the Olympics in order to do that. Okay, well, thank you so much for your insight today. That was Andy Zimbalos, U.S.-based economist, author, and the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics at Smith College. Be sure to check into Around the Rings online on Facebook and Twitter. This is Nicole Bennett. Thanks for listening.